You are looking live. I don't believe what I just saw. It is possible. There are no flags on the field. It's a miracle. From one of the coldest planets in the solar system, this is the 252 Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Gerritz. I'm Chris Moore. And I'm Sam Mulberry. So what is the 252? Well, this is the brand new podcast from the Live from AC Second Podcast Network that focuses on sports history and politics. Uh, and it's tied to a class that we're a year away from teaching here at Bethel University. So oh, we're so get, excited. We, we just couldn't contain ourselves. So on the syllabus for this course, are you going to put based on a podcast? <laughs> <laughs> it kind of gets wordy after. I kind of like that, though. Like, now, I, can I actually iron out one other semantic thing? This is yeah. going to be important if we're going to team teach a class together. To is right. it 252 or the 252? Oh, I was thinking the 252. I like the 252 myself. Oh, okay. Yep. It sounds like an area code then. We need right. to find out what that th- is the area code for. I looked it up. It's it's uh, northern North Carolina along the Virginia border. Basketball country. That's yeah, it makes sense. Sure. Yep. Okay, so we'll get to the 252 or the 252, what it is. Let's talk a little bit about the class itself because that's the origin story of the podcast. Yep. This is a class that is cross-listed in history and political science at Bethel. It will be part of our Gen Ed curriculum. And I think we'll probably be offering this like every other year, starting mm-hmm. in the spring of 2020. So we've got a year to think through it. We've mocked up a syllabus. Um, Chris, why don't you tell us a little bit of like, why are you excited to teach this class? What do you hope it accomplishes? Well, I'm excited to teach this class on a couple of levels. Uh, I've never, uh, I've, I've been part of the CWC team teaching experience, although that's been a decade now. Wow, has it? Yeah. Yeah. We have uh, to get you back on that. Never, never been back. Okay, and uh, I have. An, I, I like. I'm looking forward to the opportunity to co-teach a class, to team teach a class, but also to team teach it with you. Uh, I think that'll be a lot of fun, and I'm. I I like the way you. I like the way your brain works. I like the way that you organize classes, and I'm looking forward to kind of having some of that. Um, sharing some of that energy in the classroom. Likewise, can we just get this out of the way? This is basically an elaborate ploy for the two of us to teach a class together. Yeah. Like, it yeah. could have been anything, but it became sports for good right. reasons we'll get to here. But it's, I, I really do enjoy team teaching and co-teaching, which I've had a chance to do with Sam on multiple occasions and mm-hmm. a couple other circumstances. But to actually deal with someone who hasn't been part of CWC for a long time is exciting. Right. Yeah, And I, I would say why sports in the same way that we might answer the question, why the liberal arts? Mm-hmm. Uh, we think that sports in of itself um, is a useful topic to understand, but more importantly, the way we study sports, the way we study the history of sports and how sports impacts politics and vice versa, gives us a lens through which to understand society. Right. And that, in the same way that liberal arts give us a way of understanding and viewing and interpreting the world around us, mm-hmm. uh, that's what we hope this course will do too, through understanding sports. Yeah, I think of it in many ways the same way I think about the variety of war classes I teach. So mm-hmm. it's almost a running joke in our department. You put war in the title of a class and students come running. And I teach World War One, World War Two, the Cold War. And I, we, we do. Like Sam and I just got back from spending three weeks in Europe on battlefields and cemeteries. We talk about tactics and strategy and weapons. But if I can give it away, students, like, we're just trying to get you in the door. Mm-hmm. And there's something about sports. Obviously, we'll talk about connections to war at some point. But whether it's like student athletes, fans, whatever it is that will draw people there, I think we can get some students into class, maybe who wouldn't be taking a history or political science class. Right. And once they're there, 
we've got a way to ask some of the fundamental questions of the liberal arts. I mean, we're talking about what is the good life in many ways? What is virtuous? Right. Um, what is vice? Um, thinking about questions of citizenship and policy, good government, mm -hmm. um, the nature of the marketplace, um, protest and dissent will obviously be important. And given our setting at a Christian and liberal arts college, we're going to talk a lot about um, the relationship between sports and religion. In fact, in some ways, how sports itself is kind of religious, the way we um, inter interact with it. Um, being I'm part, also being part of the community, being part of the collective. Yeah, community, um, individual identity. Um, we'll talk and then, about and then the other body. Ide other identities ways. around that, race and gender and other things as well. Yeah, so it also then becomes a mirror to look at society. Yep. And, and, you know, the it fulfills a kind of American history requirement in some ways in gen ed. But one reason I was glad to do it with you, Chris, is we're both interested in international relations. Mm -hmm. You're a specialist in that. Our whole third quarter of the course is about diplomacy, international relations. The Olympics will be kind of our entry point. Right. Um, but it's a way to hold up a mirror to American and global society, right? And, and to look at things like gender, race, immigration, right. labor, business, right? And uh, again, public policy. So I'm excited for all that. Um, I also do like it because, I mean, like it or not, we're at an academic institution where athletics is really important. In my sense mm -hmm. is it's only mm -hmm. growing in importance. I think the share mm -hmm. of our student body who's engaged in varsity athletics has increased. I think it's yep. well over 20% now, plus club, um, other sports. Um, it, I mean, it's a draw. Like, we, we get students here only because of sports. It's really important for a lot of constituents. And for better and for worse, then, I want to think about that. And I think in a lot of places like this, there's just an assumed tension between faculty and coaches, mm. and academics and athletics. And I, I don't want to presume that. I actually... No. I want to ask hard questions about the relationship between colleges and sports. Um, I mean, D3, but especially D1. Um, but I also feel like this can build a bridge between those two. And right. so that's something we'll probably do on this podcast is bring in coaches, student athletes, sports journalists here on campus. Part of the a mantra that we have around this campus is as a Christian uh, institution of, of, of higher education and as, liberal, as a liberal arts institution, we're interested in making whole and holy persons. And we really can't do that without thinking about the, the physical nature of people. And you're right. There is often uh, one of my undergraduate mentors would often refer to uh, the coaching staffs at our various athletic uh, um, teams as the gym teachers. Mm -hmm. And there's this, there's this notion of like, well, this is a peripheral, this is an ancillary or even a um, expendable part of the, of the collegiate enterprise. And I'm not sure that it is. I'm not sure that it should be. Right, and that'll be a question we'll ask in the course, but also I think at some point on this podcast, let's pivot to that and mm -hmm. say, again, we're a year away from the course. Like, we've got a pretty well-formed syllabus, but there's going to be some work to be done here. And so why are we doing a podcast here at the very end of January, a year before this course is actually taught? Right. Why Why? Why the 252, Chris Moore? <laughs> why, are, why are you wasting my time? Why are we, why what are we, what are we here? doing why here? Doing why did we drag Sam in here? He could be meeting with students, but instead... Did you actually on this cold, cold day? I actually did this morning already, and I have one this afternoon. Did so, you really? Yeah. Wow. I don't stop, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> I was kidding about the solar system, kind of. It's like, it was minus 14 the last time I looked at my car temperature. Yeah. Age. yeah. It's, it's pretty stunning. Um so we're doing so this we're for shelter, mostly. Just that's get right. out just, It's a warming house. Yeah. We're doing this podcast uh, for, um, for similar reasons, I think, to the, to the, re, uh, the podcast that you did with, uh, with Mark Patty. That's right. Uh, in thinking about your book, The Pietist Option. Mm -hmm. 
And in that, we think there's something valuable to talking through some of the main themes, the main ideas of a course, uh, before we actually go into teaching it. Uh, especially since we haven't team taught together, right. uh, having a way to talk through some of these ideas, to get the rhythm and flow of ideas, to see where there's real depth to some of these conversations and maybe some places that might surprise us that maybe will elide over a little mm-hmm. bit in the course. So this is in some ways um, iteration zero of what the course will look like, but without the homework. <laughs> and, but uh, but you still, I mean, we, I think the plan still is to also run this parallel to the course n- next spring as well, right? Yeah, it's certainly a possibility. <laughs> yes. Like the, I mean, that's my plan, at least. Well, that's that's him. I mean, I think we do have some notion of you could use this. And you know, one thing we'll do is we'll be doing interviews mm-hmm. with uh, scholars, journalists, athletes. Code. I mean, we can use that's a bank of material we can use in the course, but we can also maybe use this for student assignments down the road. Right. They can produce content for a podcast. Um, I mean, I so you alluded to the thing we did with with Mark. So this was a book I wrote in 2017 with uh, with my friend Mark Patty and Sam and I and Mark just talked our way through the book before we ever wrote a single word of it. Mm-hmm. It was essentially it helped us flesh out an outline, talk through some ideas. And in a sense, with Sam being there, it was, he was kind of the proxy for the readers of the book. So I don't know if Sam's going to be the proxy for our students in some ways here. But, <laughs> sure, I can do that. But, I mean, it's, it's, been, it's become kind of a mantra of mine as I've engaged more with social media through blogging, through podcasting, even to some extent tweeting, Facebook. Like thinking in public is actually mm-hmm. maybe a valuable thing for scholars to do right. for our own benefit as individuals, as this team that's going to be teaching the course. But you know, maybe it's also just good for however many people listen to this to hear a couple of Christian scholars who are not experts in sports history and politics, but are knowledgeable enough, can ask some maybe good questions, talk to some real experts. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe that's good for people to hear as well, just to see us kind of wrestling with some of the issues we get into uh, through the podcast. It also scratches a niche I have, which is that I've often said that my other career would have been journalist. And I don't really? Know if it's really journalism, but it would have been sports journalism. If you had asked like 16-year-old Chris, like, could you do anything? It would have been to be a baseball beat writer or a columnist or something. And, you know, nowadays newspapers are all folding. So this is sports talk radio <laughs> is the closest I'll ever get, at least. Well, actually, we planned an episode where maybe we'll talk to someone in that world right. to talk about what that kind of sports broadcasting is. And, and to like. that extent, it does bring us back to our roots because when we started podcasting in – 2007 mm-hmm. that was our model yeah. uh, we weren't doing expo- we weren't our topic wasn't sports but our model was kind of sports talk radio well and long time so listeners it? will notice the structure of this is going to mirror the structure of that podcast so my final thing is like i just have missed doing a weekly podcast with friends people i mm-hmm. like talking to and again this just becomes the excuse to do it so so let me ask you both since you since your podcasting history goes back so much deeper back to 2007 and since you took um sports radio as an, as an influence, what are some of the things that carry over from that genre? What are some ways that you think about sports radio that influence how you conduct podcasting? Uh, I mean, one of the things in, that we're, we'll be doing on this show as we uh, move into segment two uh, is there's some uh, almost contrived like um, discussion topic type things hmm. like where we, we set something up and everybody comes with an opinion to sort of create a discussion instead of maybe a more open-ended discussion sometimes you do so little bits like that also i think some of the ways uh, i think sports talk radio at times does a good job of interacting with its audience mm-hmm. so we're going to try to do some things and that's something we don't tend to do a lot of times in our podcast but we're going to try more consciously to do that mm-hmm. you know in part because uh chris garrett's does a lot more um social media interaction stuff anyhow and that becomes a great outlet for that mm-hmm. so um, i would say those are two big things that jump out at me 
I'd say the two that stand out to me first. So, I mean, I would just say like, I listen to some sports talk. I listen to KFAN and what used to be ESPN 1500 here. And I would say one thing I like about the shows I listen to, and there's some I don't, is they hold loosely to what they're doing. They mm-hmm. don't take it too seriously. Right. They try to be very conscious of not being homers. Um, they realize the absurdity of devoting this much of your life to sports. Right. right? And so I, I hope some of that spirit informs this. I would also say... Yeah, the philosophy Sam has had about podcasting is, in a sense, it's not really about the content, the top. It's really about the personalities, the kind of relationships, and you really start investing in that. I guess a lot of people who are listening to this have already heard us do other kinds of podcasts, already have kind of bought into that. But I think one thing that those shows do well is they do develop listeners who really are interested in the people as much as anything. And so I hope that comes through. And it's one reason you do a weekly podcast as well, as opposed to some of the others, you know, like I I do another one on this network called Nothing Rhymes with Garrett's that I think went a year between episodes. It's an occasional (laughs) podcast. It's an occasional podcast. It's like True Detective. That's right. It comes back when you have something good to say. That's right. So that, that's our aspiration. You know, we're, we're figuring this out as we go. This is January 31st. You know, we'll see what, what this is like by May. It might evolve mm-hmm. in interesting ways. But that's the course. That's why we think we're doing the podcast, and we'll figure it out as we go. We're going to take a short break, come back with segment two, which normally will be time for us to interview people. Instead, I think it's time for us to talk about the rather large sporting event that's happening this weekend in Atlanta, Georgia. We'll be back to talk NFL and the Super Bowl in just a moment. This week in sports history, Cairo, Georgia, January 31, 1919. Sharecroppers Jerry and Mally Robinson welcome their youngest child, a boy named Jack. After starring in four sports at UCLA and serving as an Army officer during World War II, Jackie Robinson becomes the most important athlete in America of the 20th century and breaks baseball's color line in 1947. Call of Florida, January 31, 2015. 17-year-old sensation Lydia Ko becomes the youngest woman, or man, in golf history to be ranked number one. Nine months later, she wins her 10th professional tournament, still four years younger than previous LPGA record holder Nancy Lopez. Secaucus, New Jersey, February 1, 1984. David Stern is named commissioner of the National Basketball Association, just in time to preside over the rookie seasons for four Hall of Famers. Hakeem Olajuwon, John Stockton, Charles Barkley, and one Michael Jeffrey Jordan. 30 years later to the day, Stern is succeeded by current commish Adam Silver. Glendale, Arizona, February 3, 2008. New York Giants quarterback Eli Manning leads a last-minute comeback in Super Bowl 42, handling the New England Patriots their first and only defeat of the season, thanks to this miraculous catch by backup wide receiver David Tyree. Pressure from Thomas off the edge. Eli Manning stays on his feet, airs it out down the field. It is caught by Tyree. Inside the 25 and a timeout taken. You've been listening to This Week in Sports History. Okay, 
Okay, welcome back to the premiere of the 252. In segment two, we'll often be interviewing scholars, journalists, athletes, coaches, etc. But we're going to start by just talking amongst ourselves mm-hmm. because the Super Bowl is coming up. I think this is uh, 53 yes. this weekend. New England Patriots yet again versus the Los Angeles Rams. So there's a little weariness in that statement? Uh, we'll come back to that okay. I think, <laughs> at some point. Oh, by the way, what were we just listening to there? Uh, I actually really wouldn't know because I don't think I went. Well, no, it's, I went to a couple of Yale ice hockey games, but I, I can't say I've spent a lot of time at my graduate alma mater's uh, sporting <laughs> events. I guess that's the Yale fight song. I did find the William and Mary fight song, but even less impressive. That's right. Sure. Would okay. there be something by the Whiffin Poofs, perhaps? <laughs> that's the version. All right. So one of the themes of the course, and that it is a history of sports course, is we're thinking about change over time. Mm-hmm. And so to maybe start setting up that theme, let's let's look at what I think we'd all regard as the most popular sport in the United States right now, which is professional football. Right. Let's start by comparing and contrasting Super Bowl 53 with the inaugural Super Bowl. Was this 1966-67? Chris, I just need to say our lawyers have informed us we need to refer to it as the big game. We're not, we don't, we're not actually licensed to call it by the name you were saying. I'm sorry. The big game. So uh, just a couple of pertinent uh, facts here. In the inaugural big game, there were 51.2 million viewers, I think, on two different networks. I thought mm-hmm. CBS and NBC both did it. That's right. A 30-second commercial in those days cost four. $32,000, which I forgot to adjust for inflation. On CBS. On NBC, it only costs 37 Boy, cheap. Okay. Yeah. I assume it's much less than the projected over $5 million per 30 seconds that recent Super Bowl commercials have cost. Correct. And over $100 million expected. 105 maybe is the projection I saw for Super Bowl. 53. So how good of a number is $51 million in 19, 1967? Like I think it's, it's pretty... I mean, it's respectful, but like. But I, I mean, like, if you were watching like the Beverly Hillbillies, they would be up there too, uh, right? See, now you're revealing me to be a terrible historian because they should have context for this, and I yeah. can only guess that it's significant, but not at the level we would now regard it. Right, right, right. Which I mean, I think that is something really significant about the Super Bowl in this kind of hyper fragmented media culture where we all. It's not just the number of channels, it's the streaming. To actually get 100 million people, now it's around the world, but watching the same thing at the same time is pretty remarkable. Right, right. Um, a couple other things like change over time, mm-hmm. uh, just the nature of how the game was played. So in that season, the MVP of the Super Bowl and the NFL was Packers quarterback Bart Starr. Yep. You know what, no offhand, how many yards per game did Bart Starr throw for in 1966? Oh, can I? Just guess. Uh, 210? I was going to say 185. 160 yards per game. It would have ranked 34th in the league behind Josh Rosen this wow. year. Wow. <laughs> so, I mean, at least, I don't know how significant it is, but, like, I mean, one thing we should think about, like, the first few weeks of the class, we're going to look at the history of some sports. And mm-hmm. we should think about, like, in some ways, it's a recognizable game. You know, Bart Starr would probably adjust his play. I don't know how good he'd be, but, like, he would recognize the game being played now. But in many right. ways, it has changed significantly on the field. And then off the field. So, Sam, you pulled some ticket price information from yeah, decade so, by decade. So right? I'm, I'm curious. Uh, you, you guys obviously see these numbers in front of you. But uh, the question I want you to all answer in your head is, what is the threshold where you would – let's say your team was in the Super Bowl. Okay. And and you didn't have to worry about – Very ho- hard to imagine. Yeah like, like, yeah. like let's say it was in your hometown so you didn't have to worry about hotels and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Like what would be the ticket price? What would be the threshold where you'd say, nope, I'm not going to pay that? Um. I'd cut off it. I'd say three hundred. Chris, I'm pausing here because I'm thinking about this mental calculus, mental mental math in two different ways. Mm-hmm. I think I'm pretty close to Chris in terms of outlay, but how about unrealized opportunity? I have an ex- uh, can I give you an example? Of what I mean by this? Sure. So, 
when I was a student at Ohio State, um, tickets were pretty cheap. Uh, you could get a game ticket for about 75 bucks. As and a student? As a student. That's pretty... Okay. Well, yeah. They're no, I'd be like, I understand. Okay. Yeah. But, but hold on. Yeah. Um, one of the games that I got, that I had a chance to go to, and I had two tickets because I was married, so I could get that price for myself and, and my uh, significant other, um, was when um, Ohio State played Texas, when Vince Young was the quarterback at Texas. And this was a top five, both teams in the top five. It was a night game. It was um, it was a huge, huge, and Texas travels well. Mm-hmm. Uh, those tickets were going online for over a thousand dollars, and I could have sold them. And I went to that game. Good for oh, you. Good for you. Yeah, guys. and I'm glad I and, and we lost. I mean, Texas won that game, mm-hmm. but uh, that. So I mean, do I do I feel guilty about that? Sometimes I think about what I would have done with with two grand. Let's, on the other let, hand, let, let's not worry about the resale. I'm just curious, like, where is the moment where you're like, you know what? That's I, I'd actually rather sit at home and watch it than pay. So it's right. like around three hundred. It's or? probably pretty close. To okay, see, mine's like yeah. one fifty. So I'm 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 cheaper than both of you. So the uh, it's Super Bowl one in nineteen sixty seven. The average face value of a ticket was ten dollars. Adjusted for inflation, that's about seventy six dollars. Okay. Um, so we'd we'd all be attending at that point. Uh-huh. Ten years later, in nineteen seventy seven. It was $20, or about $85 adjusted mm-hmm. for inflation, so we're still all attending. I should point out at this point, my team is dropping out of Super Bowl contention. That's right. <laughs> That's right. 77 was the Vikings, so I, was, would, I would have yeah. paid for that. Um, uh, in 1987, it was up to $75, so about $170 adjusted for inflation. So I'm already priced out by the, 19, mm-hmm. uh, by the 1980s. In 1997, $275 is the average face value, so that's – over four hundred and thirty dollars adjusted. Yeah, then we're, fr- then we're I'm we're all firmly out. Yep. Uh, Two thousand seven was seven hundred dollars face value, about uh, uh, eight hundred and sixty dollars, mm-hmm. and then in twenty seventeen it was seventeen hundred dollars was the average face value. So, um, I mean, who is who's attending these games? Who's paying for this? I I mean, maybe someone can write in. Tell I I assume well, it's a mix of season ticket holders and then corporate. Right. I mean, I assume they're buying blocks. Of I'm, I'm, right. It must be, yeah. Right. yeah. Um, I, that, it, I mean, it's interesting because I would say, like, if I kind of idealize an age of the NFL, it's when I'm a child, adolescent, it's the 80s, early 90s. And after that point, like, I become jaded. And it's interesting. That is the point where I would have dropped out in this. Which, right, right. I don't know if that says anything. But it actually might change one of my answers to our later. You know, in terms of, like, what's happening in the NFL in around, like, 1990, 1995, Jerry Jones is showing up. There's a change in commissioner going on. New NFL TV contracts mm-hmm. probably around. Is Fox joining? Yep, Fox is in the like 96, 95, somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think there's some interest. And so to get back then to the larger theme of like what has happened over that, I guess, 53-some years now. Mm-hmm. To, so we've kind of seen some of the shit. Like what, what else would you note as being very different? If you kind of visit those two Super Bowls, those two NFLs, half a century apart, what has changed substantially that, that bears notice here as we think about the history of this one version of this one? I mean, I would say that the the media coverage around it, I mean, that it is, I mean, it may be, it may be the, the last monoculture mm-hmm. event that we yep. have. Um, uh, I was listening to a podcast yesterday, uh, Bill Simmons and Chuck Klosterman were talking about Media Day and like... Is Media Day ever like 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 when did that start becoming a thing? I mean, because obviously Super Bowl one there wasn't a week's buildup and a big. I mean, there wasn't all the infrastructure around it, um, and I don't know when that that came in. But I think the event 
of the Super Bowl week is definitely very, very different. And some of that stuff maybe even eclipses the for a lot of people eclipses the game itself definitely commercials right. like the idea of super bowl commercials i was watching the today show yesterday because none of us had work and uh they were already previewing commercials that are going to be on the super bowl and these types of things and like that it is this whole other industry you know so uh i think a lot of people will watch the game for movie trailers mm-hmm. will watch mm-hmm. the game for i'm sure there's going to be a new game of thrones trailer like these are the, these are the cultural events right. that get to piggyback onto the sporting event I would say also that harkens to this overall idea that this is much, even as in as much as it is the Super Bowl, it is much less of a football game. Oh yeah. Than yeah. any than other football games in this. Like if for football purists, people who care mostly about the gameplay, Wild Card Weekend is a more important weekend than the Super Bowl. The Super Bowl is a public spectacle. Yeah. And in that that goes into the ticket prices as well. Uh, you're right. Corporate sponsorships, eat up, uh, uh, corporate purchases of tickets eat up a lot of these tickets, um, season ticket holders. But really, the number of people who are super fans of either the Rams or the Patriots is a pretty small portion of who's actually showing up for this game. These are people who can afford to drop um, th- four to five grand on a couple of tickets and then also travel and find accommodations for a Super Bowl game. Uh, this is about either conspicuous consumption um, on the part of the people who are going. And that also goes into everything that surrounds this, the kind of media coverage and, and who's covering this. Uh, I listened to some podcasts too about, or some other coverage about who actually shows up and covers the Super Bowl that also don't cover football any other time of the year and how this is sort of infuriating to the players who, pl- uh, who get asked the same inane questions uh, by people who aren't covering football. Is there any mm-hmm. other sporting event that crosses over that much where, like you said, that, that I mean, I'm thinking about like a World Series game doesn't have that type of feel. Well, uh, the the national championship Olympics game in football. Would. Olympics, maybe yeah, a little bit. Maybe I don't a little know. bit. Actually, I think, I mean, if you were to go back in time, I think it would actually be boxing matches. Like okay. heavyweight mm. championship kind of events. I mean, the way the ticket sales work, the kind of celebrities, and actually maybe horse races too if it's in California. Like in terms of like, it's a place where you go to be seen. I mean, it, but otherwise, I'm not even sure the Olympics is really all that similar. I mean, in terms of who's going to them, why they're watching, maybe right, it, definitely. But in terms of like the corporate tie-ins and stuff, the Olympics be, is, yeah, is definitely. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, let me suggest another way of thinking about it. the first Super Bowl. The bigger sport was actually college football, right? Mm-hmm. In 1967, and even sure. the first Super Bowl. So it's played at the L.A. Coliseum, which was mm-hmm. the Rams' home field. But it was also, at that point, already been UCL, UCLA and USC. It was basically it's a college football stadium. You want to know the halftime act for a Super Bowl? Marching band, wasn't marching it? Marching bands. University yep. of Arizona and Grambling State, University of Michigan had a march. It was basically like a month after the Rose Bowl, another Rose Bowl, mm-hmm. right, is how it functioned. And now, I mean, it's the point where now all the bowls are kind of miniature Super Bowls and mm-hmm. It just shows you how the NFL is superseded and really then transformed college football in those 50 years. Um, sorry, it's somewhere else I was going with this, but I will stop talking at this point. <laughs> um, Do you know when the first? Because uh, it was. It's probably definitely within our lifetimes where the first like big halftime show was. Because I feel like even through the 70s, I don't think it was anything like. What's the first big halftime show you remember? Boy. Because I can tell you the one. The, the one that sticks in my memory, I, I can definitely remember sort of the, the blow-by-blow of the halftime show, mm-hmm. for me, is the post-9-11 
YouTube show. Sure, sure. Right? That's the most iconic one. I mean, I think that's – I mean, we could check. Like, I would guess that's what starts the current phenomenon, <coughs> which is you bring in either a kind of baby boomer, big-time band, mm-hmm. or, I mean, more recently, something that actually is legitimately, you know, a top five kind of um, something that appeals to a younger demographic. You know, Aeros- that, Aerosmith and Run DMC, because they did Walk that walk This Way. Mm-hmm. That was pretty big, and that was prior to that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think through the 90s, like, the halftime show was a thing. Yeah. I just don't remember when that crossed. Like, when did we stop having up with people and start having, <laughs> like, uh, a real a real halftime show? Were they ever? Al- I, they, I think they were, they were. actually. Yeah, yeah. They that's were. that's amazing. Uh, sorry, I should have researched this. This is earlier. what on-air research sounds like. Right? <laughs> <laughs> up okay, with well, people was 1986. Maybe they done before and after at the Louisiana Superdome. The theme was Beat of the Future. Yes. I'd okay. love to see what they thought it was. But, like, the next year was Salute to Hollywood's 100th, 100th Anniversary. George Burns and Mickey Rooney. Whoa. Okay, so we haven't <laughs> achieved it yet. No, nope. <laughs> keep going. Uh, Chubby Checker, 1988. No. Nope. 1950s art, rock and roll in 89. <laughs> wow. Um, boy, it's later than I thought it would be. New Kids on the Block in 1991. That seems like okay, it's going to be closer. Gloria Stefan the next year at the Metrodome. That's yep, then, then I think I think at this point then we probably have pop, big pop acts. Michael Jackson, 1993. There yeah. you go. Yeah. That's yeah. it. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's, yeah. that's the moment. Yep. So, um, well, to maybe veer away from change over time, think about who has caused some of the changes over time we've been talking about, maybe some others. We want to inaugurate a bit that I think will show up maybe every other episode okay. on the show. Chris, this was your idea. I think you should explain it. Um, what, what is Mount Rushmore as a game, so, not as a monument? Yeah, right. So this is actually something uh, stolen a little bit from, from Bill Simmons and Chuck Klosterman, but... The idea here is that although we have a Mount Rushmore in the United States with four presidents on it, and four presidents seems about the right size for mm-hmm. Mount Rushmore. You might disagree with who should be there, but out of the presidents we've had, we probably should have about four of them singled out for, for greatness. Likewise, there should be Mount Rushmores everywhere. Yeah. There should be Mounts Rushmore of the top four of anything. Um, and uh, we're going to inaugurate that in this uh, um, by thinking about the Mount Rushmore of the National Football League. Now, we skew this really widely. We're not talking about the best four wide receivers. We're not talking about the best four coaches. Just the top four, period. Most, Most significant influential figures okay. in the National Football League. So who has really shaped the history and the institutional structure, the nature, the character of the National Football League over the course of its history? So you got four people, a hundred years. Let's go. So I think what we're going to do is we each came with four names. Yes. We're going to each share our four. From that, we will then pick three, and then we'll talk about how we'll settle the fourth. But listen up, because you have a role to play, listeners, as we get to the end of this. Uh, Sam, can you start us with Sure. Uh, so, so my first one, and I think this is going to appear on at least some of your lists, is, uh, is Jim Brown. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he was uh, – I, I struggled, and he's the earliest person I have, I'm going to admit. Like, I struggled with, well, do I go back and try to, like, get cute and pick, like, you know, like a Red Grange or something like But, like, Bernie <laughs> Hudson. Yeah, yeah. But, but it's like. Wait, he it's was like, in Ghostbusters. <laughs> uh, uh, Ernie Davis is who you're thinking oh, of. Yes. No, no, there's. But Don Hudson. Okay. I don't know. <laughs> At any rate, uh, uh, Jim Brown is remarkable in lots and lots of mm-hmm. in lots of ways. Um, only playing twelve games a year, his, his statistically his numbers as a running back are are incredible. He sort of set the standard for what it looks like to retire at the top of your game. 
Um, he's uh, an interesting and important figure socially, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and and so so he was kind of a no brainer to put to put up there. Should I just do my whole four? Yeah. Why okay. Don't you do your four? Oh, okay. Um, all right, we can go around. That's fine. Oh, yeah, why don't, we, well, why don't we go around? That's actually better. Well, I'll go next thing because yeah. I had Jim Brown on my list too. and So mm-hmm. I would just add a couple things, which, I mean, the first, I mean, not the first African-American to play or even to star in the NFL. That comes a little bit early. But in terms of in the 1950s, um, that he was probably the most famous football player and he was African-American is very significant, that he was in some ways – I guess like the Muhammad Ali of the NFL in terms of being a voice for civil rights, yes. social conscience. And then also to some degree, I could only name like one movie he's in, but it's the Dirty Dozen. So it's like, I mean, the, the NFL has had a kind of track record of its players then becoming celebrities mm-hmm. in other respects. And so I don't know if that does a lot to burnish his legend here to polish his, the case for the Mount Rushmore. But uh, he was at the top of my list as well. Well, since you shared your your a similarity, I'll I'll lock it in. I had Jim Brown in my top four as well. He's the only player on my list, also, and because um, there were a few others that almost made my list. If we had gone in our top eight, probably the next four would have been players. Mm-hmm. But Jim Brown is the only player who starred for. And, and by the way, I should mention I'm a native Ohioan. Mm-hmm. Um, he plays for one Ohio team, uh, and then creates the other professional Ohio team. Uh, in the Cle- um, or helps create the team with, with in the Paul Brown team with uh, and Cleveland. So um, this is a, I um, and couple that with the the political importance, the social importance um, of his activism, um, and I think this is you, I can't imagine another player superseding him on on Mount Rushmore. Okay, you want to do your second one? We'll kind of work. Yep. To, to introduce my second one, I want to talk about somebody who's not on my list, hmm. but I want to introduce one of the two uh, coaches uh, for this um, for this Super Bowl. He, um, and this is depressing, guys. Uh, the coach of the L.A. Rams is Sean McVay. Uh, do you know how old he is? He is younger than me. Thirty-three. He is uh, thirty-two. Okay. And um, he, this is his first season coaching the Rams. Um, and I just want to t- tell you a little, little little history about Sean McVay here, right? All right? Sean McVay was Redskins offensive coordinator under Jay Gruden, who was Bengals offensive coordinator under Marvin Lewis, who was Ravens defensive coordinator under uh, Ted Marchabroda, <laughs> who was Eagles offensive coordinator under Marion Campbell, who was uh falcons defensive coordinator under dan henning who was jets offensive coordinator under al Groh, who was giants linebacker coach under bill parcells wow bill parcells is one of the most influential coaches in the history of the nfl in as much as a huge portion of the nfl has been fostered by the coaching uh, tree of bill parcells um and so bill parcells has to be on my mount Rushmore. wow that's a good case i'll go with a different coach that you mentioned. I'll go with Paul Brown, partly because I don't think he's understood as well. I think if people mm. think of coaches, they think of Belichick, they think of Parcells, they think maybe like 49ers in California offense. But I would say Paul Brown inaugurates a lot of what we associate with what a head coach does in terms of like uh, you watch film and you break down plays and you have a classroom where you mm. actually study the game. Um, he changes equipment, you know, face masks are innovation of Paul Brown. He helps mm-hmm. integrate the game. So before mm-hmm. Jim Brown, you've got, I think it's Marion Motley is one of the players he brings in. Yes. Again, yeah, yeah. Wrong. Um, helps run two franchises mm-hmm. and, you know, is also just dynamically successful as well. I mean, in terms of like taking us from like the days of like Papa Bear Hallis 
into what we think of as like Lombardi and then subsequent to that, I, I think Brown really modernizes the coaching profession and really shapes the NFL. Well, I this this whole thing is just to show my ignorance about uh, the history of the NFL. Um, I I put uh, I, I just went when I was looking at a coach. I have one coach, um, and I went with with somebody who was iconic as a coach. It was a, who's a head who you would recognize up there? Now Parcells is actually a head you'd recognize. Mm-hmm. But I went with Vince Lombardi just yeah. because. Sure. Of, <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, when you think about the inception of the. Super Bowl era NFL, like he is the he is the the sort of the the face of that, um, and um, and is iconic in lots and lots of ways. So I and I I'm, I don't have any case to make in terms of uh, the quality of coaching or innovations or things like that. But but I, I approach this in terms of who would, who would be the iconic heads, you know, um, that that you would see up there. So actually, I have my other two are players, okay. um, just because I was trying to trying to think of that. Um, so. Uh, this is, next one's going to be unpopular, but but one player that I decided to put on there is actually Tom Brady. He's on my list. Yeah, I mean, oh guys, sorry, Chris, okay. he's going to have played in nine Super Bowls. There's only been fifty three of these, yeah. and yeah. and he plays. And and I, I think know. I think to have a Mount Rushmore for football and not have a quarterback on there is a yeah. problem yeah. because because it is as much as we want to say anything else, it is the most important position on the field. Yes. Um, and, Especially now, and, and you know, and it breaks my heart to say that he's the best quarterback I've ever seen because I grew up in the Joe Montana, Joe Montana era, mm-hmm. and he actually reminds me of Montana in, in, yeah. in lots and lots of ways. But, <laughs> but, but built for this world, so that I, that's why I would put him on. Yeah, I'll just take on briefly to say, like, I, I just don't think there's been another athlete as dominant, and to do it in the current age where free agency and so many other factors make it so hard to sustain a team, I. I at the same time, like, part of me wants to go with Chris's approach and only put one on there because of all the professional sports leagues, this is the one that renders the players the most superfluous, right? It hides their faces. Their careers last the shortest. They have the mm-hmm. weakest union. Like, in some ways, having two players is not reflecting the history of the NFL very well, but I'm not sure how I'd leave either of those two off. Uh, what's your fourth, Sam? Well, uh, again, this is, this is a child of the 80s. I wanted a, de- a defensive player on there. Oh, um, I love where you're going with this. I love everything about oh, this. Oh, I was going to say Lawrence Taylor right. just yes. because, because like, like I was trying to think like who is when I think of a dominant defensive player. And all apologies to players from the '70s. I didn't live during that time. Like, even as a kid who wasn't a fan of football when I was little, I was aware of who Lawrence Taylor was. Mm-hmm. He also was in movies, Chris. Uh, Any given Sunday, Lawrence Taylor's in that. So it was great. If, if you need that, Very memorable. Um, <laughs> but but no, like 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 that. And 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 he's was one of the first great, um, great video game uh, football players. If you played the original Tecmo Bowl or Tecmo Super Bowl, Lawrence Taylor was a force of nature. So, but but I mean, he also was, was no was, Bo, it was no Bo Jackson. Must be no, honest. but I had to pick a defensive <laughs> player. Um, but but he's also like like when when. When players and coaches talk about somebody who changed the way you looked at a position, mm-hmm. changed the way offenses needed to scheme, that's the guy I pick. I don't know yep. that that's the best choice, but that was my fourth choice. Yep. Chris, do you want to give your last two, and then I'll round it out at the end? Sure. So um, I threw another coach on because the other – we're going to look at coaching trees. Bill Parcells, I think, has the most impressive coaching tree, but it's only rivaled by Bill Belichick. So as much as I groused about putting Tom Brady on the on Mount Rushmore, I'm going to pick his coach. Um Bill Belichick is is incredibly influential, not just in terms of cultivating other coaches, but in changing how the game is played. Mm-hmm. Now, he isn't necessarily the mad scientist that other some other coaches would, would be, but he's an excellent curator of what mad scientists do. Mm-hmm. So he's really good at picking out 
s- those innovations. And one of the things I think we need to recognize about the, about the NFL is despite it having sort of a blue-leaning or, or conservative-leaning base and being one of the more uh, – and sort of having a, a conservative-leaning clientele and a relatively weak union and those sorts of things, it's incredibly innovative. It's incredibly progressive mm-hmm. as a sport and makes a lot of changes fundamentally to how the sport is played on a pretty regular basis. And no one has been more successful at living through those innovations than Bill Belichick. And he's an innovator. And he has changed how the game itself is played. And the last one I'll say, and again, I'm mostly but this not going to be controversial, but um, – uh, so are some of the presidents on the on uh, on Mount Rushmore, Roger Goodell. As Yikes. the as, yeah, <laughs> as as the NFL has become more and more in the forefront of not only America's pop culture, America's society, but also America's politics and for for controversy. Um, we will remember this era as the as the concussion era. We'll remember this era as the era where, where NFL leaders were some of our uh, – or NFL players were some of our leaders in terms of the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, Goodell is both uh, a player and an impediment to some of those, uh, those key issues, and he's incredibly important in the nature of the NFL itself. So I was going to say, Commissioner, to you, I was tempted to say Paul Tagley, boo, because I think he's the easiest to overlook, and mm-hmm. because of – the shift I was hinting at in the 90s, that's happening under Tagliabue's watch. I think the NFL as we know it now is probably shaped by Paul Tagliabue as much as anyone I else. I think that's fair. But I also feel like we're prone to a little recency bias. So I actually will nominate instead the most important commissioner, which is Pete Rozelle. Mm-hmm. And I can build this case entirely on, besides the merger with AFL, which has to do with Al Davis and others, the Super Bowl, yep. right? which we've already talked about, but also Monday Night Football. Mm-hmm. Like We need something to reflect the way media and football came to intersect and how this became something more than just some, an event that's broadcast, but it becomes an event that has its own celebrity attached to it. Yes, true. I, I thought about putting Madden on here because he has the coach, he has the broadcasting, he has the video game, but I, I think there needs to be some commissioner, and I'll argue for Pete Rozelle at this point. So just run down your run down your top okay, four. So here, mm-hmm. well, can I just give us our kind oh, of oh, yes, yeah, So yeah, yep. two votes for Jim Brown, two votes for Tom Brady, uh, Bill Parcells, uh, Lawrence Taylor, Bill Belichick, Roger Goodell, Paul Brown, Pete Rozelle. So I think we should each now name one, and we're going to leave the fourth to listeners. So okay. I'll cheat and say Jim Brown, since we've got a consensus there. Right. Um, Sam and or Chris? I, I, I will consent that Tom Brady well, needs okay. to Well, I should list. take that because I voted for him, right? Okay. Shouldn't, isn't that how that works? Sure, or? if you want to. Yeah. So, so then I, I well, think game theoretically, that works out great for me. It sure I get does. To, I get you to pick, to pick one, one of mine. Yeah. Well, you don't have to pick one of yours, though. You, we, you could have been So convinced. of Paul Brown, Pete Rozelle, Bill Parcells, Lawrence Taylor, Bill Belichick, Roger Goodell, who I just want to point out that mine is the most aesthetically pleasing in it's terms <laughs> of like – It looks great. Right. And, and like one people would actually want to go to. <laughs> <laughs> Do people want to go see Pete Rozelle's head carved into a, a mountain? Very, very <laughs> handsome man. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Okay. It's all on you, Chris. And then we're, we have one more spot, so it's, it's not all on you. But I think as, in as much as I defended all of mine and feel good about all of mine, I'll say, I'll say Paul Brown. Okay. I think Paul Brown needs to be on the wow. list. Wow. Yeah. Well, upset there. All right. So we've got Jim Brown, Paul Brown, and Tom Brady. But, of course, there are four heads on Mount Rushmore. This is where you come in. So what we're going to do is we're going to set up a poll. We'll put this two different places, and we'll explain that in a moment. But you are going to get to vote then for the fourth head from Lawrence Taylor, Bill Belichick, Bill Parcells, Roger Goodell, and Pete Rozelle. And so what we'll do is we'll create this poll. 
uh, on our Live from AC Second Facebook page. So if you just go to Facebook and search for Live from AC Second, you'll find it there. If you go to my blog, pietistschoolman.com, there's a show page for each of these episodes. You can also vote there. It should be the same poll. All the votes should tabulate that way. And when we do our uh, next episode next week, we'll announce the results of who completes our NFL Mount Rushmore. Okay. Well, thanks for playing, guys. That was a successful launch of Mount Rushmore. <laughs> All right. We'll be back to wrap things up after a short break. Get in touch with the 252 by emailing us at livefromacsecond at gmail.com. Let's wrap up our first episode of the 252 with a little bit we call three to see. We've each, each picked uh, an event that's coming up in the next like kind of extended weekend or so. So we won't talk about the Super Bowl here because we've already uh, gone No one's that. watching that, right? Yeah, there are other things to watch. So, Chris, let's start with you. What is one thing you think people should be watching for this weekend in sports? Okay, well, maybe my ideas have been influenced by the fact that it's been just stunningly cold in Minnesota. Yes. Over the, but it has me, has me yearning for the Winter Olympics. Uh, it's not a Winter Olympics here, but... Uh, if you're going to watch one thing this next week, uh, Michaela Schifrin, who's 23 years old, is the best downhill skier in the world, and it's not even close. She currently ranks number one in three of the four distinct Olympic events, Slalom, Giant Slalom, and Super G. And by the way, Super G might just be the coolest name for an oh, Olympic yeah. event of any kind. She's also 20th in the other event in downhill. So that puts her, she has about double the number of points the second place person does in World Cup standings. Starting on Wednesday, she and the rest of Team USA are competing in Ari Switzerland, Sweden uh, in the Alpine World Ski Championships. Uh, so check her out. Uh, she has a really good chance of winning a gold, two, maybe even three golds um, at these world championships. Also, if you happen to tune into that, it may be your last time ever seeing Lindsey Vaughn ski competitively. She was, prob- she was possibly going to retire prior to this event, but was a surprise addition to the roster. She's been dealing with nerve damage in her knees, and very likely she'll retire at the conclusion of the event. Okay, I'm going to stick with uh, cold sports and talk about hockey here, which I, I'm going to guess will not get a lot of coverage in this podcast. But <laughs> oh, I'll, no, we're going to talk about I'll hockey. be the hockey guy. Uh, and I actually want to talk about college hockey here, which is one of my favorite sports. Um, as a Minnesotan, I want to claim that we are the state of hockey We've got, I think, five Division One teams, uh, not all of which are doing actually all that well, although I think the U of M did sweep Ohio State a couple um, games yeah. recently. But uh, I have to admit, here and there. I have to admit that uh, the state of Massachusetts also has a pretty strong claim to being the state of hockey. I think UMass is actually number two right now. And starting on Monday, February 4th, and then I think into Tuesday, is probably the most famous tournament in college hockey. This goes back to 1952 or 53. It's called the Bean Pot. So there are four Great Division name. One college hockey teams in the city of Boston, and every year they face off 
in a bracket of four. So on Monday, you've got Boston College versus Harvard, and then Boston University versus Northeastern. Now, they're not actually all great. Northeastern is number eight the last time I checked the polls. But this, the, you know, what used to be the, um, uh, the Boston Garden is filled for this. They've got rabid fans. And the winner of the semifinals go to the finals. Mm-hmm. In some ways, this is their tournament, especially in the year where they're not real legit competitors to go to the Frozen Four. Watch the Beanpot Tournament from Boston coming up Monday and Tuesday. Sam. So, so after two, uh, two cold weather sports, I need to talk about fire. And, uh, the is f- it the fire festival? <laughs> well, I'm making a documentary about it, actually, because <laughs> there's a, a shortage of those. No, someone who is absolutely on fire, uh, and that is uh, Houston Rockets guard James Harden. I don't know if you've been uh, watching the NBA yes. at all. So actually, I'm going to be recommending four events that are coming up <laughs> in the next week. Uh, Friday the, the 1st, Saturday the 2nd, Monday the 4th, or Wednesday the 6th are all Houston Rockets games mm. this week. Um, James Harden has scored over 30 points in 24 straight games. Over that stretch, he's averaging 42.4 points per game. Wow. He's at th- oh, he's over 36 points a game for the year, which to give some context to that, only two players in the history of the NBA have ever averaged over 36 points a game. Wilt Chamberlain did it six times. Michael Jordan did it once. Mm. So he is in absolute rarefied air. He is absolutely on fire in part because – um, Chris Paul is hurt, so mm-hmm. there's really no other option on the team. Right. So it's sort of this unique moment. I think Paul's out for another two weeks. So it's this unique moment if you want to see this this kind of freakish display of scoring. Check out a Houston Rockets game. Harden does not uh, does not disappoint. Lots of threes, lots of free throws. Mm-hmm. Super fun. So you should watch that. I don't I don't always follow the NBA really close, but I I'm now officially in the. If I don't watch the game, I check the box score first thing in the morning to see what he got. Mm-hmm. Like I just want to see this yeah. keep going. I'd love to see him get up to 40 points a game for the year. That'd be really cool, but that's I can't right. that, that can't happen. Yeah. Uh, or if you're looking or. for another event, I'm actually <laughs> give you two uh, because this is a this is an annual uh, thing in the Mulberry household. So Super Bowl 53 is on this Sunday, mm-hmm. but just crap. prior to that uh, is Puppy Bowl 15 <laughs> on Animal Planet Sunday the third at 2 p.m. Central Time. So it is once again Team Fluff versus Team Ruff. <laughs> now Fluff has won the last two Puppy Bowls, mm. so I think it's time for Team Ruff to. You know, they need to figure stuff out. Although I will say my pick for MVP actually comes from Team Fluff. Now that doesn't mean that the MVP has to come from the winning team, but I am. Uh, I'm. I'm gonna. I'm pulling for Remington. Uh, he's mm-hmm. a 15-week-old uh, beagle from New Jersey. So uh, look for Remington in uh, Puppy Bowl 15 on Animal Planet. So are there prop bets in uh, in Puppy Bowl, Sam? Is that, that's another big part of the game we haven't talked about yet. Yeah, we, well, we, we will have to do a full a full show on sports gambling. First to chase his own tail, the first to, I don't know. You mock, know. Chris, but that's because <laughs> you've never mock. watched Puppy Bowl. That is also true. All right, well, it's been a fun first episode. We're probably running out of tape at this point. But <laughs> uh, thanks for joining us for the inaugural episode of the 252. We'll be back next week. Probably talk a little bit more about, well, ourselves. Why do we follow sports? Why do we love sports? Did we play sports? sports mm-hmm. uh, i'd love to hear your guesses about that we did this once with students and they all thought i played lacrosse for some reason which is definitely not i can buy that i can see okay, that Okay, we'll talk more next week yeah. so join us then if you do have uh, comments send them to live from ac second at gmail.com and remember to vote in our nfl mount rushmore poll either at our facebook page for live from ac second or at my blog the pie to schoolman thanks for joining us chris do you have a snappy way to take us out of this only my usual way which is particularly appropriate for the two five two five two Go Royals.